Local voices, local conversations. NapaBroadcasting.com Welcome back to NapaBroadcasting.com. Hemingway said of wine that it was one of the most civilized things in the world, that it offers a greater range of enjoyment and appreciation than any other sensory thing. Even if you wouldn't go that far, it's fair to say that wine is a powerful force for good and for the nefarious. Perhaps no other event disrespected wine more than a massive fire that was deliberately set 10 years ago, a fire that destroyed four and a half million bottles of wine worth more than $250 million, a crime that grew out of the cover-up of a lesser crime, out of greed and out of an egotistical need of the perpetrator to be judged a connoisseur of wine. From this crime, like from the bottled poetry of wine itself, my guest Francis Dinkelspiel brings alive a sip of California history. Frances Dinkelspiel is an award-winning author and journalist. Her first book was Towers of Gold, How One Jewish Immigrant Named Isaiah Hellman Created California. She's a graduate of Stanford and Columbia's Graduate School of Journalism, and her articles have appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the LA Times, and numerous other publications. It is my pleasure to welcome Frances Dinkelspiel to talk about her new book, Tangled Vines, Greed, murder, obsession, and an arsonist in the vineyards of California. Francis, thanks so much for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's great to have you here. When did you realize in in covering this story and looking at this story that it was more than just a crime story, that there was something else going on here that was worth further exploration? Well, you know, the wine destroyed... um, Vintages made from 90 different winemakers, many of them in Napa, and 40 collectors. So there was a richness to the bottles that burned up. I mean, they came from all over California. Some of them were very old, including some I write about that were made in 1875. So inside that warehouse that was destroyed, in many ways, there was a snapshot of, of, of wine history in California. And that was one of the things I tried to explore in Tangled Vines, you know, tracing the history of some of these bottles to, you know, illuminate how California got to where it is, you know, now in terms of swine production. Right. And and talk about your personal connection to it. So um, some of the wine that was burnt up was made by my great-great-grandfather, Isaiah Hellman, in 1875. Um, during that era, Southern California was the largest winemaking region in the state, and he had a vineyard in Rancho Cucamonga in San Bernardino County. It was a fabled vineyard that had been there uh, for a long time. The first grapes had been planted in 1839. And so, Entangled Vines, I trace the history of that particular vineyard because it tells us so much about California history and also wine history. The first grapes were planted when California was still part of Mexico. And uh, so, you know, it was a land grant given to a guy named Tiburcio Tapia, who was both a mayor of Los Angeles and a smuggler, which is a reflection of some of, you know, how crazy and wild the times were. And then it went through a succession of hands um, until it ended up with Isaiah Hellman, and and th- the story of that vineyard is just you know full of murder and greed and obsession. Right. I mean, as you look through the history of this, this fire and uh, the cover up of of the crime that led to the fire, this is not the first time that greed and obsession has led to to wine re- wine related crimes in California. 
No, definitely not. In, in some ways, um, you know, the, the history of wine in California or the early history of wine in California is a sordid one. I mean, one of the most shocking things I discovered was the treatment of the Native Americans uh, in making wine in California. Uh, the very first law that was passed by the California legislature in 1850, even before California was part of the United States, was nicknamed the Indian Indenture Act. And it allowed any white man to identify a Native American as either drunk or, or a vagrant or indolent, which would trigger um, a mechanism that would allow a sheriff or a marshal to arrest that Native American, fine him, and then put him up for public auction in order to pay off the fine for up to four months. So uh, really the, the fields of the early wine business were worked by Native Americans who were little more than slaves or indentured servants. And I was very shocked to find this out. Um, you know, certainly, labor's always been an issue in the wine business, but the early years, it was, it was, it was, you know, the vineyardists really treated their workers very poorly. And the other nexus of it that you referred to before is that for so long, Southern California, not Northern California, was really the center, the hub of the, the wine business in California. Yeah, that was something that was interesting to find out. Um, so, you know, the first vintner in the state was Father Unipro Serra, who imported um, mission, the Mission grape from Baja and planted it down in Orange County. And the Mission grape was eventually planted in about 17 of the 21 missions. Uh, but it was very well suited to Southern California. It could tolerate high heat. And, um, you know, the people of Los Angeles... They planted a lot of grapevines, um, you know, early on. And so L.A. was actually called the City of Vines for a while. It was so green and filled with grapevines. And there was a lot, you know, people in the north were, the gold rush came and people were interested in, in mining and getting gold. So there was less attention paid in the north to, you know, planting crops and that kind of thing. But in Southern California, they were focused on feeding the, the miners, too. So, um, you know, that was impetus to, to plant more uh, grapevines and plant grapes that they could sell for a lot of money in San Francisco. So until 1890, Southern California had more uh, acres in, in, in vineyards than up in Northern California. What do we know about the quality of that wine and the efforts, and you write about some of this, the efforts to improve the quality of that uh, wine being grown along the L.A. River? So uh, this was also something I found really interesting, is that you know California has had to prove itself as a winemaking region um, from almost the beginning. And I, I do think California still has that kind of uh, attitude uh, today. So the Mission Grape uh, was very vigorous, but it did not make the best wine. It, it, you could make a red table wine, a white table wine. People often made brandy or another fortified kind of wine called Angelica out of the Mission Grape. Um, and it wasn't the best wine in the world. And, and also, a lot of people planted grapevines just to make a buck, and they didn't really care about the quality of the wine they made. Uh, so they would use musky casks, or they just wouldn't do it properly. And then some of this wine was shipped to New York, um, and since it wasn't the best wine, it, it developed a bad reputation. And in New York, 
any good California wine would be slapped with a French label, and just the worst California wine would be sold as California wine. So for a long time, the history of wine in California is an effort by uh, people who really cared to improve the state's reputation, and it was a battle that was, you know, fought long and hard, and and um, it really wasn't won until you know the the late part of the 19th century. To what extent did Mark Anderson, who was the perpetrator of, of this crime, who set the fire, who you got to know a little bit in, in covering this story, to what extent did he have any sense of of the history that was really in that warehouse? Um, I don't think Mark Anderson thought for a minute about what he was doing when he took a propane torch and you know set fire to some gasoline-soaked rags. Uh, Mark Anderson was in his own personal agony, and I think it, he, he is a narcissist. He was, uh, uh, he was, you know, defined as a narcissist by a psychiatrist later on. He thought only of himself and his own troubles. I think he, he, he didn't think at all about all those winemakers, all those workers, all those people who spent thousands of hours making that wine. I think it didn't even cross his mind. Talk a little bit about the crime and, and really the reasons for it. In many ways, this crime was to cover up another crime. Yes. So Mark Anderson um, was a Sausalito businessman. He was very active in the Chamber of Commerce. He served on two city commissions. He was, you know, a, a man about town. He, he was known um, around town. And, but he was not a very, partic- not a very successful uh, businessman. And in 1999, he decided to start a wine storage company. He called it Sausalito Cellars. He advertised. He got a lot of people to store their wine with him. And um, the, the business struggled. And after a while, Mark Anderson realized that he could make more money selling his clients' wine to wine, uh, wine retailers than you know, just storing it. So he started to take some bottles of wine and would sell it. Um, and he sold about 8,000 bottles of wine worth more than a million dollars to retailers around the Bay Area. And, you know, this is another issue. Um, a lot of retailers were not particularly scrupulous about asking, do you have the right to sell this wine? And when they did, he would just say yes. Anyway, um, it took a while before some of the clients who had wine with Mark Anderson to discover that their wine was missing. And when that happened, um, they went to the Sausalito police, and the, and the police started to investigate. And over a period of time, they found out that you know he had stolen at least from 10 clients, and they initiated some embezzlement proceedings against him. And at that point, you know, I think Mark Anderson... He felt trapped. He, he had moved his client's wine to Wine Central Warehouse in, on Mar Island. Um, and I think he might have considered, you know, if I burnt down this big warehouse and I burn all my client's wine, then when the cops say that, you know, I stole the wine, Mark could just say, oh, no, it just burnt up in that warehouse. So, um, you know, the federal prosecution think that he was trying to cover up his tracks when he set fire to the warehouse. Talk a little bit about the investigation, because it, w- it went on for a very long time. It took uh, a lot of effort to prove what had actually happened. That's right. So, you know, uh, proving arson, it's, it's often a circumstantial case. It's, you know, it's, usually people don't see someone, se- you know, lighting a match and setting fire. Um, so in my entangled vines, I, I trace... Um, um, 
sort of the actions of Brian Parker, who was an ATF agent, and he was the lead investigator in the case. And he, it took him a long time to get enough evidence um, that Mark had, had set the fire and had been stealing wine. Part of what Parker had to do was show that Mark Anderson had illegally sold some of his clients' wine out of state. Right before the fire, Anderson shipped off a, a couple pallets of wine to the Chicago Wine Company in Chicago. And, um, you know, the feds didn't just charge Mark Anderson with arson. They also charged him with, you know, interstate, illegal interstate tra- transport and, you know, income tax evasion and things like that. It took uh, Brian Parker a number of years to take the bottles that had been shipped to Chicago and figure out who owned all of them in order to prove that they had been stolen and illegally sold. And that was part of um, the, the reason it took so long uh, to you know, bring actual charges against Mark Anderson. It's so interesting that the initial crime, selling the, the stolen bottles of wine to retailers, really goes back and addresses the, the broader history of wine distribution in, in the United States and in California specifically, and how that changed so dramatically both from both before and after Prohibition, and why they were the kind of opportunities there were to engage in those kind of nefarious practices. Well, you know, wine, it's interesting, you know, wine is very closely regulated in many respects by, you know, various federal bureaucracies. Um, but sort of once it's bottled and out in the market, it isn't um, it isn't that closely regulated. And you know, as a result, uh, wine theft is on the rise. I mean, almost every day or every week, you read of you know some other crime, like the one you know the people who broke into the French laundry and stole all mm-hmm. those bottles of French wine. Because of the internet and because of a lot of of, of stores selling wine on the internet, uh, there are many opportunities to dispose of stolen wine. And, um, you know, it's a problem. And there's no one agency that's sort of looking at it and cracking down on it. So I think this is a problem that's just going to keep growing, especially as the value of wine increases. Talk a little bit about some of the other wine history that was destroyed in this fire. I mean, so many... uh collections of wine that people had as well as as wine that was being stored there for uh, for other vintners yeah so um in the book i i trace the stories of a couple of vintners in particular um uh ted hall of long meadow ranch uh had a couple of vintages in in um in the warehouse as well as a lot of his library wines uh, dick ward of saintsbury um, he, he, Saintsbury lost all of their library of wines, and you know, starting from you know their very first vintage, and they were hitting their 25-year mark and had planned to do a vertical tasting in New York with all the top wine writers and one in San Francisco, and suddenly they didn't have their wines to taste. Um, so there was story after story like this of vintners whose you know lives had been overturned. Delia Viader, who owns Viader Vineyards, she had. Um, a lot of wine in the warehouse. It, it wasn't her usual warehouse. Um, she usually stored stuff on, in American Canyon. And her insurance company uh, would not pay her for the wine that burned up because they claimed it was, quote, in transit. So Delia lost millions of dollars worth of wine. And, you know, she was forced to sell uh, one of her vineyards in Italy, and she had had hopes to retire there. She had to sell her home there. So, um, you know, she, her life was completely upended. Some people went out of business. 
um, and because you know they weren't insured and they were you know it's very competitive business uh, winemaking and if you lose your placement in restaurants and on store shelves and if you don't have any new wine to to introduce for at least two years uh, you know that can be a, a blow a death a death knell to your business so you know it was very very sad for a lot of these vintners what happened and and how um, you know how devastated they were by this arson. Among those that were insured, how did the insurance companies view this, and what sense of of wine history, if any, did the insurance companies bring to bear, or were willing to even talk about? Um, well, you know, wine history—that's a very interesting question. I see insurance companies don't look at <laughs> the age of a bottle or the history of a bottle. To them, it's you know a liquid that they're insuring, and so. I don't think they um, give added value to old bottles that might be rare. That's not really um, how they regarded it. Um, but they, you know, there had been some other fires. There had been a Frank family f- uh, fire, um, I think around 2000, and insurance companies learned some hard lessons in that fire because some of that wine was sold on the salvage market and then it was uh, sold in stores around California. And that affected the reputation of some of the wineries whose wine had been damaged and was then being sold under their own name. So I think insurance companies uh, were uh, more strict about, you know, um, working with the winemakers to make sure that the wines that were damaged were destroyed or all markings were taken off of them if they were going to be sold on, you know, resold on the secondary market. One of the things that, that you point out is that wine fraud of, of so many different varieties is becoming a bigger and bigger crime. Well, it is. I mean, wine has become a, uh, a collector's item. And, um, you know, I say this is particularly true for French wine, for Bordeaux and Burgundy. And in recent years, there have been people who have... Uh, who have you know put together concoctions of wine and put them in bottles, um, you know, that are Petrus or you know, uh, you know, uh, Mouton Rothschild and 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 sold them um, at at auction and you know tried to pass them off as as you know, expensive French wines. And in fact, there is one man named Rudy Cornillon who was just put in jail. Um, it's been two years now. He is accused of, you know, of this massive fraud of doctoring up all these old bottles uh, and, and pouring in fake wine and selling them to some of the country's most respected collectors, including William Koch of the Koch brothers, uh, who was defrauded by him. So um, that's a really big issue. If, if you don't know where your wine came from originally, you can't follow the providence. You need to be very, very careful when you purchase what's a, you know, supposed to be an old and rare bottle of, of French wine. What about collectors that had wine destroyed in this fire? Did you have the opportunity to talk to any of them and, and, and a little bit about how they dealt with this? So, yes, um, I had a cousin who, um, who had 175 bottles of wine made by my great-great-grandfather in this fire. And, um, you know, she had been um, working with Ted Hall and getting this wine ready to sell. Um, they were thinking about, you know, creating like a collector's pack of, you know, one 1875 Angelica, one 1875 Port. Um, and then the wine was gone. And so, um, you know, for her, it was devastating because this was her family's history that was destroyed 
for the insurance companies, which paid her, um, it was, you know, it was a dollar value. And, and um, so she, she, she was reimbursed financially for this wine that was lost, but she was in no way reimbursed for the emotional distress that she suffered as a result. Um, and I think that that is, um, you know, that, hap- that was true for lots of collectors. What did everybody learn from this experience? Well, uh, I write about this in Tangled Vines. Um, They learn that you don't store your wine in a warehouse that doesn't have sprinklers. I think that's a very important rule. And I don't think that people thought that. The, The Wine Central Warehouse was an old Navy bunker that had been used to store torpedo parts. And, if, and urban legend also says that it had uh, stored the parts for the first atomic bomb. So the walls were really thick. And um, I remember talking to Sean Thackeray, who, you know, the Bellinus winemaker, and he was talking about how he saw that warehouse and he thought, in an earthquake, nothing will move in this warehouse. And so people were, you know, looking at it for earthquake. Nobody was really thinking about fire. And so um, I think that this this fire this fire has really uh, woken people up. They know they have to be more careful about what kind of warehouse they select. And I do believe the warehouses now, you know, are do have sprinkler systems, and they are more aware of catastrophes that can happen. Frances Dinkelspiel, her book is Tangled Vines: Greed, Murder, Obsession, and an Arsonist in the Vineyards of California. Frances, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Well, thanks for having me. Thank you. You're listening to NapperBroadcasting.com.